Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Okay, this is our final session with Stan. Again, we're jumping right into the middle of the conversation, so there's not going to be much lead-in, but this is the final session of that interview I did with him. Uh, thank you for watching this. Uh, this guy, man, pay attention. What he's saying is deep and nuanced and layered and so important. The first time you and I ever met for coffee, you had to leave early. You had to perform a funeral for a gay man who was well into his like 80s, I think, or something. Yeah, who, who had killed himself. It's one thing to for people to hear stats and like, okay, whatever. It's another thing to be involved in the lives of people who are actually experiencing this stuff or taking their own lives or what have you. Um, would you be open to sharing some of the experiences you're having in that space to humanize this conversation for people who don't have proximity to the LGBTQ plus community? They're only t thinking about this theoretically, but the, your experiences and your firsthand witness and accounts of these people's lives is like, it's sobering. I'd love for you to just share some of that if you're willing. What I do is very interactive with people. I never thought Facebook could be this. And I know the frailty of social media platforms, but I realized very early on in my advocacy work that it was patronizing, condescending, really ignorant to say that I'm a voice for the voiceless. That's so diminishing. You have a voice. You have a voice as much as I have a voice. What I realized was I'm not providing a voice for people like you who don't have a voice. You have a voice maybe better than my voice. And on this issue, for sure better than my voice. I knew there was something to the spirit of what was trying to be said there. And I realized, oh, my privilege as a cisgender, heterosexual, white man, evangelical pastor, is I have a platform. It's not that I have a voice and you don't have a voice. Most of the LGBTQ people that live in that world it's not the absence of a voice, it's, an ab it's the absence of the microphone. It's the absence of the platform, the amplification system. So Mike, what I started doing a few years ago was instead of arguing and debating, you know, tenses of verbs and theology, other people have done that well. And you're, you're not going to do that really well in the space that's given on Facebook. So I don't like to diminish that work by thinking in three paragraphs, I'm going to end the debate on Romans 127. <laughs> what I could do was I could turn my microphone over to people like you. I could turn that platform with tens of thousands of followers over to my LGBTQ brothers and sisters and say, this microphone is a privilege. Maybe I've earned, maybe I haven't, but it's mine. Instead of you trying to earn one, use mine. That I felt like instead of rejecting the privilege was a good stewardship of the privilege. Through that, I just began sharing you guys' stories. And immediately those shares begin to get so much attention. Even now, when I do an abstract theological post, minimal interaction. But when I do a post and say a 14-year-old kid called me last night, off the charts. We're incarnational. We eventually have to get back to Scripture and do that hard work. But the thing that really moves the needle is the body of Christ. I mean, think about, you and I have talked about Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus under the cover of night. Jesus looked at him, gave him the whole born-again speech, even concluded his time with him by giving him John 3.16. I mean, the scripture that's been most quoted 
the scripture that's used, you know, millions of times over to millions and billions of people. Jesus spoke those words to one man, and Nicodemus still was a disciple of the night. Nicodemus came out of the shadows when he watched Jesus on the cross. Watching the suffering of the body of Christ was the ultimate thing that moved him. One of the responses to those Facebook posts are the direct messages that come. Everyone generates from a few to a few dozen direct messages, private messages to me. So that has led me into a pastoral work, which I I love. It's the part of pastoring I always loved, where I'm interacting with these folk. And I've become a, like Paul was a literary pastor, I've become a Facebook at large. I always give these folk my phone number. I end up You know, a third of my day are FaceTime Zoom calls. I mean, when you reached out to me from California, I said, get here. I'll, you know, I'll come to you. Through that pastoral work, I mean, to come to the end of the response to your question, I do, I have done now in the last three years, somewhere between 15 to 20 funerals for people who've lost their life to suicide, directly related. I mean, suicide's a complex matter, So there are always other issues involved. But one of the main issues involved with these people's loss of life was the irreconciliation of their queerness with their Christianity and the pain that came from that in their familial social setting. So 15 to 20 directly I have done those. I have been with a few dozen more in IC units, psychiatric hospitals, and then a few hundred more through the Facebook medium of FaceTiming with families. The last three nights, late at night, one of my good friends, and she'll probably listen to this, her 22-year-old queer child is on suicide watch. And they can't work, they can't do anything because the child is so broken down psychologically. Psychiatrists involved, counselors are involved, I'm the pastor who's involved. Yeah, this is, this is incredibly real. You know, the language is really important. We don't say anymore these people killed themselves. We don't even say they committed suicide because I think even outside of religious circles, we're recognizing the variables are so complex that would lead a person to that place of despair that it's not something they did alone. It's not something that they committed. It's something that they suffered. And so these people have not committed suicide. These people have died by suicide. And nowhere is that complicity more real than the world of conservative religion. The response to everything I just said from my most conservative traditional friends who are doubling down on the other side of this issue is, well, Stan, the reality is, yes, homosexuality or transgenderism is involved in this child's suicide, but that's what sin does. So that's the easy response. The knee-jerk response is to say, we understand that there's a correlation, but the correlation is that's the results of sin. I always respond to that. I have to bite my tongue, but I respond to that by saying, listen, I know for a fact, I'm old enough to know the difference between something that is strictly correlational, something that is immediately cause and effect, and something that is just remotely coincidental. We all learned that sophomore college. There's coincidence that's just coincidence. But then there's coincidence that coincides correlationally. These two things impact one another. And then there's coincidental correlation that moves to cause and effect. And I know right now that you're not willing to admit cause and effect here, that this is bad theology. What I believe is happening to these people who are dying by suicide is exactly what Jesus said 
when he said, you put burdens on people they cannot bear. He didn't say that are hard to bear. He said that they cannot bear. They're unnecessary burdens that God never intended. You put them on people in the name of God. And then the worst part is when the people collapse under the load of those burdens, you point at that collapse and say, well, that's what sin does. And you don't lift one finger to help them. And you may even think you're right that they collapsed and it was their fault. Jesus said, I'm asking you to consider, could it be that what you have imposed on them is not the rule of God, it's the law of man and you're wrong. So I'm asking you to not admit today that it's cause and effect the way I see it. But I'm begging you, don't say it's coincidental only. And I'm also begging you to revisit what you think the correlation is between those two things. And I don't think that would be a magnanimous act on your part to consider that the nature of that correlation. I think it is an ethical, moral, human, and yes, Christian responsibility to do that. I live up to the ears of my soul daily with people and families who are wrestling with the tragedy of suicide, suicidal ideation, and a huge correlating element is these people's religious sensibility that somehow they are broken in an area that they should, by my estimation, be considered the most beautiful part of their life. What would you say to a queer person who's listening to you now? This might be the first time they've ever come across you. What is something you would say to them? What are the things you've discovered people in their position need to hear, need to know? I mean, the, the first thing that I, I tell these folk is that someone like me, Again, back to the privilege variables, cisgender, heterosexual, evangelical, white, middle-class pastor, all of those privileges for me that make me a caricature of everything that's ever hurt you. To some degree, they're also, ironically, the credibilizing element of who I am for you. I, I didn't personally have a dog in this hunt. And as a matter of fact, I was one of your persecutors, but... I had a moment like Saul of Tarsus where I was knocked off the donkey and I was on my way to continue the persecution. I heard a voice say, why are you persecuting me? The thing that made Paul the most credible was that worst part of his life. He had been the great persecutor and he changed. So there's gotta be something to that. And I want you to know that I'm not a closeted gay person who's trying to convince myself. I did this at cost to myself. I'm not a martyr. I did this at great cost. And I quickly would say the recompense of that has been far greater than the loss. But I did do this at loss. And the second thing I would say is I did this because I, an intelligent, sincere, non-queer person, pastor, did this because I came to the academically, scientifically, biblically, experientially, intuitively, reasonably, naturally clear conclusion that same gender, romantic love, is not seen by God any different than heterosexual romantic love. It is as blessed by God as one of the possibilities for love within the context of human sensuality, sexuality, and intimacy as heterosexual love is. You have no reason to be ill at ease with yourself, this most beautiful part of your life. This most beautiful part of your life doesn't deserve the church's generosity or magnanimity or need those things. 
it deserves to be celebrated. The church doesn't need to do something wonderful for you. It just needs to stop doing something awful to you. That's all. The difference between my heterosexuality and your homosexuality is of no more consequence to God than your eyes are green and my eyes are brown. Eyes are beautiful, green or brown. And I want you to know that's where I'm starting. And that's where I, I hope you could start with yourself. And I'll put a plug in. I understand why LGBTQ people are leaving Christianity, leaving religion writ large. I understand why they would think, why you would think that I'm trying to redeem something that's irredeemable, why I'm trying to clean up an abuse that can't be cleaned up. But I still have hope that Christianity and other religions have the capacity to mature beyond the foolishness of how we have traditionally held this particular issue. So I, I would hope God's emissaries have not so botched it that you hold this against God and spirituality. But if you do, I, God will probably shake your hand one day and say, you know what, your atheism was just you defending me because you were clear that I couldn't possibly be that. If you want to hang in and still do spirituality, shoot, if you want to hang in and do Christianity, I think Christianity at its heart has not done this to you and can be so much better than it's been. I want to mention this. I know this is this is the part where I want to say something. So when I first met with you for coffee, got a, I got together with some friends afterward. Like a couple hours later, we were just catching up and talking, and I was just kind of sharing that experience. And I broke down and wept with them because it was the first time in my life, and I was 33 at the time. It was the first time in my life that I had ever sat across the table from someone in your position, all the things you describe that you represent and have always been harmful to me that I didn't even admit or was willing to recognize. It was the first time someone in your position representing all those things knew about my sexuality and didn't need me to change. Like saw me that way and accepted me there. And if anything, your work defended my legitimacy. So when I was processing that with my friends later, I just broke down and wept. And it was like a visceral experience. I didn't even understand why I was crying. I had some things I could probably conclude, but it was so intense and so deep. I would think it's potentially trauma, right? But just like there was something that you embody and represent that I apparently needed or whatever that like opened this dam. And what's fascinating is when you came over for dinner or a couple months ago, whatever, right? And we're all hanging out and talking. Um, another girl at that table is also queer on her journey. You left, we're talking. She hadn't said a word for a while. I'm like, hey, how's that for you? And so she started sharing a bit of her process and I didn't even think about this. I'm like, why didn't I put this together? But she started saying the same things I said at that conversation after I first met you. She's like, that's the first time in my life I've ever, and she just said all the things that I was saying and she broke down and wept. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is fascinating. Like you embodying and I guess like sitting in the position of what we've been hurt by for so long. We just stopped keeping score. We stopped paying attention. We stopped recognizing, you know, these elements and just learned how to survive within that context. And so having someone like you in this position has been incredibly redeeming and healing and so helpful. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing and the ways you've approached this and the intelligence and the sincerity. What would you say to the, even, the general evangelical, whoever they are in whatever position, who doesn't know gay people? You know, they don't have proximity to this community or people like this, or maybe they seem from a distance or they like know there's a gay person that goes to the Trader Joe's or whatever, right? But they don't necessarily have a relationship with them because you did have that in your process, right? Do you think they can do this theoretically? Do they need to have relationship with gay people in order to actually do a full, you know, changing of their mind on this? The thing that makes this easier, the thing that always made it easier for me is I always had a face 
it, it just it wasn't a two thousand year old text I was wrestling with. It wasn't it wasn't a statistic. It wasn't six to eight kids. It was Tommy. There's no way the way we are wired humanly that a face, a name, a relationship isn't going to advance and and probably shorten the process. Is it possible to do it without? For sure. Um, Because I think the logic is there. I think the case can be made, obviously. I mean, the case has to be able to be made without the emotion of relationship. Some would even challenge on the other side and say that the emotion overtook our reason. Some might even claim that it's best to not have that personal side so you can be completely objective. And I, I get that argument, but I think it defies the reality of incarnation. That's why I've said again and again and again that it doesn't take long in this work to notice that the parents of LGBTQ kids flip on this issue far more often, far more quickly than people who do not have an LGBTQ child. My opponents on this would say, well, of course, because these parents are prone to compromise because they're wanting to justify their child's behavior because they don't want to... No, no. These are people who still believe in heaven and hell and Christianity and all of that. You think they would be jeopardizing their child's eternal soul just to make them a little more comfortable in this life? The reality is I think the parents of LGBTQ children are not prone to compromise. I think they're prone to humility. And I think they're prone to humility because all the rest of us are playing with Monopoly money and plastic chips. You play the game really hard. You play the game with acute attention when you're not playing with fake money, but you're playing with every dime you have in the world laid on the table in the life of your child. So by my estimation, the people with skin in the game actually are the clearest prophets on this matter and the most credible because their child's suffering is their ordination. Their child's pain and experience is the mantle by which they're called to this work. Seldom have reformations been instigated. Though they've been led by clerics and professional Christians, seldom have those movements been started in the ivory tower. They've been started at a body of Christ lay level. Yeah, I I, I think you should, if you don't know somebody, you should reach out because it's easy to, as you're theorizing about all of this, to hold, I mean, where I grew up, I mean, gay people were abominations. They were reprobates. They were really the worst of sinners. I grew up in that era where... I grew up in the AIDS era of the 80s where this was the recompense of God, the judgment of God. We had, I mean, the softening of the evangelical church who doesn't agree with me. It's a long way from where it was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Part of that was on the other side of the AIDS crisis, we went in saying this is the judgment of God, and then Christian people began to know people with AIDS, and then the sensibility began to grow. We even began to work and create hospices for these people. Tell you what we realized, they weren't these two-horned, sulfurous breath, long-taloned demons that we thought they were. They were sons and daughters, beautiful people, teachers and doctors and accountants and plumbers, the loveliest of people. Best way for people to find you, get out, if people are seeing you for the first time, like, oh my gosh, who is this person? If they have a similar response to you that I did, how do I get a hold of this person? How do I get more from what they're saying? Is Facebook the best way? Uh, Facebook is the way, really, <laughs> for me right now. I, I Again, I have a lot of people telling me I should expand the platform. I have an ethical responsibility as a pastor not to generate (laughs) more work than I have the capacity to do. You'll even notice if you follow me on Facebook, there will be times that I'm, you know, 
prolifically producing material, and then I'll go into a stall. Sometimes three days, sometimes a week. At most, it'll be two weeks. I'm, I haven't gone away during that time. I'm catching up to the calls. What I can't do is, on this platform, create these emotional intersections that generate people reaching out to me under great duress. I mean, some of them are reaching out to me and they thought they would never reach out to a pastor again. So they're putting themselves out there to reach out to me. I can't be in a situation where it's taking me five and six days to respond to them. These need immediate response. So I am working and looking at developing um, you know, a, a group of people like myself, other pastors like myself who can shoulder some of this load. But even that's a slow process. Everybody's busy with their own work. So for now, that's my justification for the fact that it's <laughs> only on Facebook, mildly on Instagram, but even on Instagram. I started there and it just got to be too much. So find me on Facebook. The wonderful thing that allies and advocates can do on Facebook is to comment on my post. I mean, you know, I make the post and then the magic happens in the dozens and hundreds of comments. I have had countless queer people tell me that they never clicked one time on my Facebook post, never clicked like, they never shared, they didn't dare comment because they were still circling for whatever reason all of this. But they every day went and read the comments and the community that developed in those comments for them. By the time they finally do make themselves known, they're already family. And those comments, just reading the love of these people, mama bears and different ones, the comment section. So the, I think the real magic of the Facebook post and the comment section are all the people who don't comment, but are reading mm. and hearing and feeling loved. If you want to get a hold of Stan or see what he's doing, connect to his work. Facebook's the best place. We'll drop a link in the description here so you can grab that. Stan, this is one thing I ask people that I'm interviewing, and we'll wrap up with this. So typically, whoever is sitting across from me in the field of the work they're committed to, I ask if there's a confession they have about their process or their journey, things that they're like, I don't know about this. Uh, I actually have this question. I don't believe this anymore. I... You know, just these these question marks, these gray areas in their work, specifically that has to do with their field. Something behind the scenes on the journey they're on as they're doing their work. Is there something you'd want to throw in there if you're sitting in like a confession booth and saying, yeah, there's this. Sure. The confession that I make isn't about a present circumstance or a present action that I'm taking or a present thought. But it's something that has forever been with me since 2015 when our church made the move to full inclusion. I wish I could go back and do that again. I, as the founder of that non-denominational church, obviously had a lot of sway, cast a long shadow. And I had the capacity in that day to lead our church to full inclusion when the majority of that congregation, a wonderful congregation, did not agree with me. Actually, in our polity, a majority of the board could have voted me out as pastor. But we were a non-denominational setting. And in non-denominational settings, there's generally kind of a central charismatic leader. And I was that guy. Nine out of 12 of our board members immediately left instead of voting me out. They didn't want our building. They didn't want, there wasn't a denomination to fall back on. So I exerted my influence in such a way that it imposed my sensibilities and my decision on a church. And since that moment, I mean, these were my best friends in the world. These were family. These were people that I had worked with for so long. These were people who had helped build that church. We had a beautiful 20-acre campus. They had poured life, blood, sweat, and tears into that. To this day, so many of them, beyond disagreeing with me on the issue, they feel like 
I hijacked a church that was theirs with undue influence. And I don't disagree with that. <laughs> I don't disagree with that. I, I understand how they feel Robin Hooded by me. And I say to pastors all the time, I suppose my confession is this, if I had it to do over again, I wish I would have in those moments said, listen, I acknowledge I, I have a lot of influence here. You probably don't want the church without me because I started it with 12 people and I'm very much in, ingrained in the success of the church. It was probably more of that evangelical style where one person has too much, you know. Yeah. Though I had developed theologically in polity, I was still very evangelical in that sense. If I had to do over again, I would go back and I would sit down with them and say, this isn't my church. This is your church and this is your budget. I serve here. I know I cannot continue to serve in a church that is not fully inclusive. And so I will work with you guys. We'll take our period of discernment. And if at the end of that discernment, this church still doesn't want to go that route, then I will help you find your next chapter. I will stay so it doesn't, you know, it's not undermined. I will move on. Um, I wish that I would have done it that way. I don't know that that way would have been right. I don't know if that's just, I don't know. I don't know what that is, hmm. but it's something, this is an imperfect process and that's one of the things that still haunts me. I don't enjoy that there are really lovely people that I lived a lot of life with that feel hurt by all of this. Some of my friends on this side now say, oh, they're just whining about stuff to try to make you feel bad because they were too chicken to make this move. I don't, I don't know. I don't know, but I, I, I talk to pastors all the time about this, and that confession generally is at the fore. If not a confession, at least a pause to think about how you do this. I do know that most of the pastors who have made this move, led the churches, they all face the backlash of people saying, well, it's not what you did, it's how you did it. And once we found one another and began licking wounds together, we realized that we had all heard that and that we all did it differently, which kind of leads you to believe there's no perfect way of doing this. It's messy. You've talked to me about like Rosa Parks and just, you know, even just the segregationist space of American history and the attitudes of the people who had to like shake off compromise. And I mean, you... <laughs> We were having conversations when I still wasn't publicly out, and you're like, oh, you're still doing that thing, are you? And I'm like, oh, God, stand. That voice, in the midst of looking back at how that played out, and you're like, I wish I would've done it differently. In your mind, if you would've changed it, the process you just described, would that have taken much longer? And is that something you think still is actually appropriate? I'm just curious as far as like, how do you reconcile? Because it seems like in some ways, there's no way you can do this in a way that's gonna quote unquote go well when the establishment is so intensely against being inclusive. I guess I'm just kind of like, I mean, I think I can, I can empathize with you on the emotional side of just being a person relationally with people. I've experienced a ton of grief in my process of coming out in the way that I did. Like I get that, but I'm also like, what's the alternative, right? What, I'm curious, like what are your thoughts on that? I don't think it would have, taken longer, I think it would have looked differently. And the way it would have looked is I would have left and the people who disagreed with the long tradition of the church would have left. Because in fairness to the church, it wasn't, and they weren't the ones who changed, I was. I think there's power of stay, uh, there is power and there's impact by staying within a non-affirming organization as an affirming person if you're stating clearly that you're there for change. I think there's also power in being willing to lose that. 
to be willing to be put out. I think it wouldn't have taken a lot more time, but I think I would have had another level of impact, whether it would have been more or not, it would have been another level of impact if I would have been the one without the church. If I would have been the one on the outside saying, you can have all of that, I would rather be out here. Jesus did not try to maintain his place or the temple. He admitted it was crumbling. He got off before it did. And in the rejection process, we still look back at the way he was rejected and it moves us. I mean, I think about Mandela in prison. I think about Solzhenitsyn. I think about the suffering servants. There is a part of being willing to suffer. Okay. Stan, thank you so much. Are we done? Yeah, we're going to wrap that up. Thank you so much for doing this with me. You guys, again, Facebook, if you want to check him out, that's going to be the best way to get a hold of Stan. I'm so thankful for this man, the work that he's doing, and the impact he's having on people's lives like me. I'm just one of you know, hundreds of people that Stan is, has helped and is continuing to help. So thank you so much for the work you're doing, Stan. Thanks for doing this with me. Thanks for having for me. Sure. We'll do it again. For sure, we will. If you're in the queer community or you're an ally to that group, I want to let you know that we've got a lot of resources and opportunities over here at NUMA, um, the company that I run. I just want to make sure you guys are aware that we are looking for people like you to get involved. So if you're interested in anything like that, my team is actually willing to get on a Zoom call with you just to do a discovery call to explain what we do, give you a bit of a tour, help you understand like what all is available, kind of ask you more where you're coming from, what you're looking for, and then help guide you in the direction that makes the most sense. So if that's something you're interested in, I've provided a link below for you to fill out a simple request to have someone from my team reach out, and we're happy to get you plugged into what's going on. Thank you guys for watching. I'll see you in the next episode. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.